0: Welcome to the Global Seventh-day Adventist Church podcast. Please like and subscribe. Also visit us on social media, um, on Facebook, that's Global Seventh-day Adventist Church. Or um, we also have Instagram, Global's Youth. Please check us out there. Also um, on our website, goebbelssdachurch.org. Um, please uh, join and join us Sabbath mornings at uh, 9.30 a.m. for Sabbath school and 10 a.m. for church.
1: This song is called Broken Things by Matthew West. Um, I I mean, this song was always relevant, but I feel like more and more the song is relevant in this world because of how broken it feels. And it's really easy to feel hopeless and helpless um, when things are so, so broken. Um, But as we will learn in our sermon, Christ is the victor. He's the conqueror and he can overcome all things. So the song is about how he can take those broken things and how he uses broken things to do so much good. So. kingdom. I stopped at the gate thinking I don't deserve to pass through after all the mistakes that I've made. child, don't you know that the first will be last and the last get a crown? Now I'm just a beggar in the presence of the King. I wish I could bring so much more. But if it's true, the misfit heroes you chose. Tell me there's hope for sinners like me. Now I'm just
0: Happy Sabbath. It is gorgeous this weekend. It's been a while since I was here last. Um, I don't know if it was a fundraiser night, but all I know is it was just a bunch of us who played basketball in the gymnasium here. So my last memory here is a good memory. Did not break any bones. If you're familiar with a place called Pawpaw, that is where my wife and I have been members, oh, I don't know, 26, 27 years. My wife Vicki is with me this morning. And it's really nice to see so many faces that I've uh, seen in quite a while. In fact, walking in the door, meeting uh, Brother Rasmussen, his brother was in my graduating class of 77 at the Wisconsin Academy. We just had Wisconsin Academy uh, alumni weekend, so had a chance to to see his brother Bruce up there. It's always neat when you're with a family of God, no matter where you go, God's family is there. Mind if I pray? Gracious Father, I pray now that your Holy Spirit would guide every word that comes out of my mouth. Lord, I have... Uh, I pray that this is the message that you would have me share. Guide my thoughts. Guide my heart and the hearts of all those who are here. May we, for you, this study be drawn more closely to you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> it didn't go as I had planned. I graduated from Wisconsin Academy, went off and joined the Army. I I went in to be a mechanic. It just seemed like, you know, when the Army says, hey, would you like to be a mechanic? Well, I think any healthy young man says, hey, that sounds great. But I ran into my first Sabbath problem about six months in when I got transferred down to Fort Benning, Georgia, and the company commander made it really clear I would be at the motor pool on saturday morning and when i explained to him that i was a seventh-day and it was on my dog tags that meant nothing to him and that uh that friday afternoon I, it was close and then like three three o'clock 330 and i remember i hustled across the field over to the chaplain's office got in there and the sergeant e6 was sitting there and i said i've got a problem you know i just just spent you know, a number of months up at Fort Loss in the woods Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, and did my basic training. I had no problems there. I went on to be a mechanic, had no problems there. I've been here less than an hour and I've got big problems. And he said, you know, we have lost all three of our chaplain's assistants. Would you be willing to be trained as a chaplain's assistant? So here you had this kid who had just graduated from the Adventist Academy up in Wisconsin, who now had three bosses, an Episcopalian, a Southern Baptist, and a Catholic. If you're going to learn about the Bible, why not jump in, right? And I see a wonderful couple that we went down to Florida with years ago when Vicky and I were just newly married. Good to see you both. That's a whole other story, isn't it? So I I got out of the military, went to Western Illinois University for a couple of years. I was going to go into law enforcement administration. But during that two years, I took advantage of what they call the interlibrary loan system where colleges and universities can, you know, mail books to each other and such. I had always seen these things that come up on evangelistic presentations that this book says this and that book says that. And I had never seen books in my life. And so I took advantage of that for two years. And at the end of those two years, I made a decision to drop the law enforcement and go to Andrews University and go into counseling and religion. So I took one summer and I signed up to go to Hutchinson Soda Academy is, to spend one year working as the assistant boys dean, but I had the summer free. And so through a friend of a friend, uh, a pastor up there said, why don't you come up here and work as a Bible worker for us for the summer, and then you start off at the academy. And so I did that. Now, I was very fond of the book of Revelation I don't know. It's, it's kind of mandatory, you know, if you go to an Adventist school, you know, Daniel and Revelation is supposed to be two books that you know well and, and love. So I said to the pastor, would you mind if um, if I did a, a Revelation study where we just go chapter by chapter through the book with those from the congregation who would like to come out during the summer? He approved. And so we uh, put a little blurb in the newspaper and by of course the members. Now the first night, first night was easy. Introduction of Jesus Christ, Revelation one. In fact, you probably have your Bibles with you. You go ahead and turn to Revelation. I know some people might be a while since you looked at uh, this particular book, but Revelation chapter one. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It tells us that in verse one. So that first night, it was just a, a it was just a wonderful study. And so the following week, when we came back together at the church that evening, we uh, went into Revelation 2 and 3. And if you look at your Bibles, you might even have titles in your Bibles. But uh, just as a reminder, chapters 2 and 3 are about the seven churches and how Jesus is introducing himself as the solution, as the answer to their problems in all seven churches. In all seven churches, he calls him to overcome. And then, of course, at the end of chapter 3, and you heard this text right here a little bit ago, where Jesus, uh, at least in the King James, which I am using, he, uh, he come as he himself has overcome. So that was a great study. And of course, being an Adventist, we talked about church history and how each of these churches had certain elements that kind of pointed to phases of church history from the time of the cross to the second coming. Well, now the next week was really wonderful. The, the next week we are in Revelation 4 and 5, and you'll see in your Bible that Revelation 4 and 5 is about the throne room. It's a beautiful study about the father and the son who is uh, described, symbolized as a lamb and taking the scroll. So we had a beautiful study that night. The following week we came back and uh, the four horsemen, I always thought four horsemen were pretty fascinating, So uh, that night we started in and, you know, took the horses one by one. And so, for example, here in your Bible, and uh, you know what, I just put my glasses on and I realized I'm in Romans. This is why you wear glasses when you get up to preach. Wow, that is a first. Okay, maybe it's time to check the prescription on them too. All right. Well, I tell you, the the VA has treated me well. I hear there's a lot of things that the VA gets uh, scolded for, but the VA out here in Battle Creek has been very wonderful to me in my post-military life, and I appreciate everything they've done for me in terms of my health. So with the glasses on, Revelation 6. So let's look at the first horse here. Revelation 6.1 And I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. And one of the four beasts then was speaking, saying, Come and see. And John tells us then, I saw, and here's what I saw. Behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Well, yeah, I talked a little bit about church history there and I'm ready to go on to the second horse and there was one individual who was sitting in a pew that Wednesday evening who raised his hand. I had no idea who he was. He didn't appear to be a member. Uh, I had not seen him previously. I think there's a like an unspoken rule that you don't raise your hand during an evangelistic study or something like that, but he didn't know the rules, and uh, and I couldn't ignore him. And so when I acknowledged his hand, he, um, he said, let me make sure I understand this. Everyone knows that this writer is the Antichrist. Are you suggesting that the Antichrist was guiding the early church. There's one thing I did learn during my years at Academy was that if you're involved in a Bible study and a question is raised that you don't immediately know the answer to, then let them know that you will get back with them. That is a good question but you need to get back with him on that one. That that put a wrinkle in my evening. It was difficult to move on to the other horses with that cloud hanging over the first one. And sadly, unfortunately, I did not get back with him because I did not know how. I was staying at the head elders home that summer when I returned home that evening, my room down the basement, along with his library. I was grateful that he had a a good library. And I went straight to the books. There were three books that he had in particular. You're probably familiar with them. Maybe even own them. One was Uriah Smith and Daniel in Revelation. Another one was Anderson. And another one was Haskell. I believe those were basically the the three primary books that we had in Revelation at that point. What I discovered was that none of those authors Talked about the rider. They talked about the colors of the horses. They talked about the instruments that the rider carried. But none of them addressed the rider himself. One thing was clear. This writer cannot be Christ and Antichrist. He has to be one or the other. Therefore, this seal is either good news or it is a message of doom. Now, if, if this is the Antichrist... Let let me explain to you, because this is what most Christians around you do believe. So let me explain. If this writer is the Antichrist, then anything to do with the church finishes with the seven churches. Chapter 4, and I invite you to turn to it, chapter 4 in your Bibles, I was very tempted to do this as a PowerPoint this morning, but I I kind of decided at the last minute I wanted you in your Bibles. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. after this I looked, John says, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as a voice of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, the throne room. If this rider on the white horse is the Antichrist, all talk about the church stops at the end of chapter 3. The rapture of the church occurs right here at the beginning of chapter 4. The tribulation begins, the great seven-year tribulation begins, and that rider on the white horse is none other than the Antichrist, who is going to make it hell on earth for all who are left behind, and especially for the Jews, if he is the Antichrist. So you can see why this is so important. Now, I'm going to deviate just a little bit here. I used to carry... I used to carry a bag on Sabbath morning, a a brown paper bag filled with books. And then one day wisdom took over and I said, why don't I just make a copy of the front of the book and take the quotation I need? And then I don't have to carry a dozen books with me every time I go to church to present on the White Horseman. This is the front copy of the NIV study Bible, which means... Anybody here might have this. Now, if you have the NIV Study Bible, here is the note that you have at the bottom of chapter 4. It reads, Only some interpreters find the rapture of the church here. If I went through a potluck here, and I asked the lady who is serving, may I have some, I would not expect, expect her to pour the whole bowl onto my plate. That's not some. That's most, if not all. What the NIV Study Bible Note tells me is that there are only some, and you'll see why that makes a difference in a moment. There's another book in my library. This one is called Revelation Unveiled. This is written by a doctor named Tim LaHaye. Now, you you would probably recognize his name quicker as the author if I would have said something like Left Behind series. Because that's really the only book that most people know. Most people don't even know this one exists. You open up the Left Behind series and you'll quickly find out it's not a Bible study you're lucky to find a few verses in all 16 volumes. It's a story. But yet, according to this book, inside the book, we're told that this is the foundation for the Left Behind series. Now, here's what's really interesting. I come to Revelation 4 in his commentary, and here is what I read. This is him now. None of the reasons that I have given are sufficient in themselves to insist that Revelation 4, verses 1 and 2 refers to the rapture of the church. Pretty strong admission. I continue. His word. Most. Remember the plate of food? Okay. His word. Most prophecy scholars are reluctant to say that Revelation 4, 1 and 2 are a direct teaching of the rapture, and here is why. His words, because it does not specifically say so or, continue, give us any additional details about that event. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. You have to have the rapture here if you're going to discuss the Antichrist in the first seal. But in the book that people are not reading, the book that is foundational to those 15 or 16 volumes that have so like hotcakes, in this book you tell us that most scholars do not agree with you and you confess because there's just nothing here in the text that will support it? Wow. Wow. And after I read that, then this commentary makes a lot of sense. This is the this one happens to be the NIV application commentary on Revelation, which uses the same word that he uses most. Hey, remember the plate? Okay. Most contemporary, that's you and I. Most contemporary commentators believe that revelation regards all believers. Let me put that in real simple language. The commentary is telling us that most scholars, most Christian scholars believe that the book of Revelation is about the church, about believers. You see, my understanding of Revelation 4, one is consistent with most Christian scholars. That means that when I go down to the Christian bookstore and I look at what I call the eye candy on the prophecy bookshelf, those books are being sold and driven by Sunday morning, whatever you want to call these programs, that are pushing this stuff that even someone like Tim LaHaye says cannot be shown by the Scriptures, well, there's clearly a, a disconnect, if you will, between the Sunday morning preacher who is pushing this futurism and the overall most scholars who are taking this Scripture seriously. Do you see the difference? Am I making sense here? And they, they're telling us, They're telling us that it's right there. This does not require a seminary degree. It's right there in black and white. But it's so important. Because if we get chapter 4 wrong, then we're most likely going to get chapter 6 wrong. So that's why I had to take this moment to let you know from Dr. Tim LaHaye himself what he knows to be the truth. And again, if you have this commentary at home or if you have a study Bible, it's right there in your notes. So, when I study with other pastors and I bring these things to their attention, it's eye-opening. It's not what they've been trained up with. Now, Enough there. Let's go back to Revelation chapter 6. Your Bibles, Revelation chapter 6. Here's another book. This one here is the cover from Matthew Henry's commentary. Lyle, you're familiar with Matthew Henry. It's probably one of the commentaries that us Adventists use most often in our Bible studies and Revelation seminars. It's the classic. I mean, shortly after the Protestant Reformation, this this is one of the classics of, of Protestant literature. Matthew-Henry Commentary. Now, let me share with you what his commentary states. Now, this is 1792, so it's just slightly after, slightly after the Protestant Reformation, but it's been a while. 1792, it's been a while. But I want you to understand what your Protestant forefathers understood. And so in his commentary, he says, regarding the rider on the white horse, most consider this, the victories of Christ. Most, key word, Christ. It's interesting how this word most just keeps on coming up in all these writings, doesn't it? But it tells us a lot. And when I see that word consistently coming up, it tells me then they're all in agreement. Most. Now, here's a big question if most scholars believe that following the Protestant Reformation, you know, when they opened up their Bibles and started studying, what happened? where did this Antichrist come from? See, I'll leave you with a challenge today. Go down to the Christian bookstore this week and ask them for the book that explains how the church over recent history exchanged Christ for the Antichrist in Revelation. No such book exists. None. See, to me as a student of Revelation, this this is as powerful in my mind as as the change of the Sabbath. There's nothing there. But what we see over time is ideas beginning to spread and people accepting those ideas. And the right person grabbing onto that idea could spread it to others. And if you get a key figure in the church who grabs onto this idea, suddenly everybody assumes that it must be true because he said it, he wrote it. But today we're not concerned about who he is, we're concerned about what the Word of God says, right? Now, let's take a look at the evidence. Revelation 6, verse 2, your Bible, read along. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Oh, time for another book. Here it is. See why I got rid of that grocery bag full of books? <laughs> it's just too much. Here it is. George Eldon Ladd. Nope, nope, not an Adventist. George Eldon Ladd, commentary on Revelation, and... Uh, Oh, I I like his words here. White is consistently a symbol of Christ or of spiritual victory. So in other words, and, and his note comes here in Revelation 6, in his commentary. So in other words, you would need to show me Why, in this one case, all of a sudden I should be inconsistent with the book of Revelation? He's not. And that's why he sees Christ as the rider on the white horse. Well, There's more pieces of evidence here. Uh, Let's take, for example, the bow. Notice in your Bible it says, he had a bow. Now, I've read some really, really interesting things. I mean, there are some who will say, hey, but notice there's no arrows. Now, I don't like using this illustration, but I'm going to because I just want you to understand it. If this were a modern writing in the sense that instead of a bow and arrow, we had a gun, okay? Nobody would assume that the gun is not loaded, okay? So let's not assume that because he says bow and doesn't mention arrows, that there's no arrows. In fact... You can look this up later. When I go back to Psalms 45, it mentions that the writer has a bow, doesn't say anything about arrows. Here's what's interesting. What I've used for years is the Ryrie Study Bible. Dr. Ryrie is a futurist, Dr. Ryrie is a dispensationalist, but I love it. When my friends in the dispensational realm of things share things that are powerful and meaningful and good. Here's the note in Psalms 45 of my Ryrie Study Bible. Notice what he says. Speaking of this rider who's on a horse with a bow, he says, quote, a royal wedding psalm, which ultimately refers. To Jesus, I don't have to make a case for Jesus as the rider on the white horse because he has a bow. I, I can go right there to the Old Testament. Oh, and by the way, if I remember correctly, isn't Revelation 19 where Christ is on a white horse at the end of the book? Isn't that a picture of Jesus Christ coming for His bride? You see, Revelation 19 borrows from Psalms. So I was delighted when I was looking through my notes here from Dr. Ryrie, and I had him already laying it out. Yeah, this is a picture of Jesus. He carries a bow. Enough said. I don't have to argue with anybody. Jesus carries a bow, just like some of their other theories carry a bow. Let's take a look at something more meaningful. Oh, this one here. Now, Keep your finger right here in chapter six, go back a couple chapters, let's look at the text that was read this morning. Notice Revelation 3.21, Revelation 3.21. In the King James it reads, to him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame and sat down my father on his throne. Now still keep your finger in chapter six but slide over to chapter five. Let's look at another text that, that Lyle read for us this morning. Chapter five, verse five, and one of the elders said unto me, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has prevailed to open the book. And finally, let's come to our text here in question. Chapter six, verse two, I saw the rider on the white horse, and he went forth conquering and to conquer Anybody who knows me probably knows that one of my favorite words is Nike. Now it's true, it's true. Nike Nike is or was a female goddess in Greek mythology. When my wife and I had taken a tour over in Greece to the city of Olympus where the Olympics started, I found it very fascinating that next to the ruins of the Temple of Zeus, and of course, you know, Zeus in Greek mythology, he was the big guy. I mean, there was just nobody bigger than Zeus. But I got a picture standing outside, uh, outside of the ruins of the temple, and just outside in front of the temple, you will have a pedestal, a pedestal of roughly about four or five stones, and then the rest of it is missing. If you go into town, into the into the modern town of Olympus, and you go into the museum, that's where you'll find the rest of the pedestal and the goddess Nike, who stood before there. You see, for the Greeks, Nike, she was the goddess of victory. By the way, it's why the shoe company did not choose the name Lemon when they made the shoes. Okay, they chose Nike because it means victory. As big as Zeus was in the eyes of the Greeks, yet before many of the temples around that region of the world, they would have Nike out in front. She was the goddess of victory that went before. Now here comes the cool part. Those three words, overcome, prevail, conquer. Would you like to take a wild guess at what the Greek word is behind all three of those English words? You know it, don't you? Of course, the King James doesn't use the word victory so some of you here today might have a Bible. You might have like the Holman translation where they're more consistent. They use the word victory all the way throughout. So here's my point. We are back in the day, 2,000 years ago. Not I, but your pastor who has received the letter of revelation from John. You know, it, it was traveling around. You all speak Greek. Greek. And here's what you hear your pastor read from John, from his revelation. My friends, Christ wants you to Nike, even as he Niked, and share the throne with him. And then he goes on to the vision of heaven. And it was there that the lamb nike through his sacrifice on the cross. And then you go on to Revelation 6. And now we see a rider on a white horse, which Lad has already told us consistently refers to Jesus Christ or spiritual victory. And this rider went out Nike and to Nike. Are you seeing the connection across all three here? It's all the same word. We're not used to it because we're not reading the original language. But they did. And now imagine for a moment that they have just heard this read. And then somebody in the audience, somebody in the congregation says, Now I wonder, I just wonder if if this third use of Nike on the white horse, I just wonder if this could be the Antichrist. Where would that come from? Not from the language, not from the context. In fact, I, I like to refer to this as the opening story of Revelation. Because if you think about it, when you look in Revelation 7 of your Bibles, In Revelation 7, you you see the 144,000, the church militant. You see the assembly, the great multitude. And then, and then what? And then you see the victors, those who overcame, those who prevailed, those who conquered with Christ. You see those with the victory palms around the throne, with the Lamb, before the Father, all tears are wiped away. Do you realize that your Bible, your, your book of Revelation, your Bible, could have finished right there and you have the complete story of Jesus and His church and His victory and the victory of the church through Him. Amen? This is a beautiful story. But we've not noticed it. And partly because of the language. And that's why I asked Lyle, please read this in the King James. I, I didn't want you to see this early on. Nike. Nike. And so one day when I picked out a dog and we were driving home, she's a female German shepherd, and my wife said, what are you going to name her? You can guess. We'll leave it at that. But you see, Nike is the golden thread that connects all the opening visions. And Nike is related to the throne And so that is why you see the greatest promise of all the promises to the seven churches, the greatest promises comes in the seventh and last church. I I think it's unfortunate that we hear so often about how terrible the Laodicean church is. Let's talk about the positive. Let's talk about what Christ offers the Laodicean church. Let's talk about the fact that he has overcome. And by the very fact that he bids us to overcome with him, it's a promise that we can overcome with him. And then he says, and if you overcome with me, you share the throne with me. And then what does he do? He says, hey, put that on pause. Let me just show you my throne. And he takes John into heaven. He shows him the throne room. It's glorious. It's beautiful. It's amazing. And it's mostly amazing is because the lamb is there and what he's done. And as soon as that picture comes to a close, you go right through the four horsemen and into Revelation 7, And the story concludes with all the victors with the Father by his throne. Those are the key words Nike and throne. Oh, but wait, wait, I I, I forgot this one. This is so important. Because, see, people will point out to me, they'll say, but, but Jim, I was reading, and this has to be an imposter. This can't be Christ, because look at the crown that he's wearing. Okay, let's look. Verse 2. Oh, it just says crown. Keep your finger there. Go with me to Revelation 19. Keep your finger right there. Go to Revelation 19. And way over here in Revelation 19, we have another rider on a white horse, wearing, actually, many crowns. Revelation 19, verse 12. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. I don't know if you recall, but just a few moments ago, you were singing a hymn about Jesus Christ wearing all those crowns. But do you remember what the word was? He wears many... Oh, you were just singing it. Diadem. Diadem. Bring forth a royal diadem, Right? And so what they do is they turn Revelation 19 and they say, but wait a minute, this is a diadem, and we know that this is Jesus Christ. But Jim, go back here to Revelation chapter 6. Look at the rider on the white horse. Jim, did you not pay attention to the language? Do you not know that this crown is a Stephanos? That's not a diadem. This is an imposter, says Billy Graham in his book Approaching Hoofbeats. And who am I to argue with someone like Billy Graham? unless I argue from the word of God. The word of God says, the rider on the white horse is wearing a Stephanos. You might find this interesting. A Stephanos is a wreath. And that's why when you do a word study and you go back to the cross, you will find that they placed on Jesus' head a Stephanos of thorns. In the seven churches, do we have anybody who wears a Stephanos? Do we have any victors? Of course. Even the saints in the seven churches are referred to as wearing a Stephanos victor's crown. Oh, how about the 24 elders? The 24 elders around the throne there in Revelation chapter 4, they're also wearing Stephanos crowns. So there's only really one question left. Is there any proof that Jesus ever wears a Stephanos crown? Hold your finger in chapter 6. Let's go to chapter 14. Don't you love word studies? Don't you just love it when the Bible just pops out at you and just I mean it's just all here. Revelation chapter 14 verse 14. You, you know this scene. This is Jesus Christ. It's here in verse 14 of chapter 14, it says, And I looked, and behold, a white cloud. And upon the cloud one sat, one like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown. But wait a minute, Jim, wouldn't a golden crown be a diademus? Well, you would think so. Oh, by the way, let's pull out another book. Yeah, this one here. You probably read this one. You, you see, the Gospel from Patmos by John Pauline this this was our book of the year, you know, not too many years ago. You know, we had the devotional book every year, and this was the one. You probably forgot these three big words, so I'll just remind you. Okay, let's see. Where, where did I write this down here? Crown, crown, Pauline, here it is. Quote, the golden victory crown. The golden victory victory crown. Personally, I think that Revelation is given us a picture through the crowns of the progress of Jesus' ministry. Way back in Revelation 6, he goes forth. He has just conquered at the cross. And now through the gospel, he goes forth with a victor Stephanos. In Revelation 14, we see him coming on the clouds of heaven. Interesting, it happens to be a white cloud. I mean, it says so. But here he comes on the clouds of heaven. It is still a Stephanos, but it is golden, which would seem to point towards the diadem at the end. And then finally, the last picture of Jesus with a crown is Revelation 19, where he is crowned with many Diadems, and called King of Kings. The progression's beautiful. His whole ministry's right there, from the cross to the King. Oh, and here's one more piece of evidence that you Adventists should really appreciate. You know, you, you've been reading in the Sabbath school lessons about chiasms. I mean, we've been studying Genesis, right? And there's so many chiasms in Genesis, but we especially talk about chiasms when it comes to the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. Not that those are the only ones. I mean, there's Joel and the others, but especially Revelation. And, and I'm sure you have seen in the past where they probably put something up on the screen, and, and they showed you the chiasm is is, is sort of like um, sort of like a, a book, you know, um, or sometimes they'll say it's like having a mirror here. And so what you see in the first half, you see in the second half. And the really cool thing about Revelation, written as a chiasm, I mean, really, it's just talking about the kind of poetry that Revelation's written as. And and so they'll point out that with a chiasm, what you see in the beginning is found again in the second half, and and the two halves kind of complement each other, which means that if I have a rider and a white horse in the first half, and I'm not sure who that is because it doesn't say Jesus Christ, but then I have a rider in the second half who it does say is Jesus Christ, and because the chiasm generally shows us things that are the same and complement each other, well, the chiasm is just one more reason for me to see Jesus Christ and not the Antichrist. You see, no matter how I add this up, it, it, it comes out the same. The evidence points most strongly to Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you a reason for going to Bible study at your local church. We're down in Florida, and we're visiting a uh, grandmother-like woman that we know. And, and so uh, she says, well, it's Wednesday night Bible study. Would you like to go? Now, I know a lot of people go to Florida and think, man, I'd rather be sitting out there in the pier. But we said, yeah, we'll, we'll go. And so they were studying the scriptures and studying the great controversy together that night that we were there. And after all these years of studying Revelation and the four horsemen, I was just blown away by this because it it, it does come up. People will often say, I mean, my evidence friends will often say, but what does Ellen White say? Fair question. Does she have anything to say? Oh, yes, she does. I, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading. So here it is. Greek Controversy 641 and 642. And I, I, w- I would just read the few words that I quote here from these two pages because what you're going to see is that she blends the scene from Revelation 6 with the scene from Revelation 19. Watch. Quote, Jesus rise forth a mighty conqueror. That'd be six. He comes victor can no, kind of still six. King of kings. Oh, definitely 19. And who shall be able to stand? Back to six. In those two pages of her end-time description of Jesus returning, she takes the words right from Revelation 6 and right from Revelation 19, and combines them as one she is perfectly in tune with the chiasm of revelation oh and then just a few years after that william hendrickson now, i'm a dutch boy i'm from holland michigan so you know I, I i favor some scholars more than others so here we have more than conquerors don't you wish you would have wrote that book that's just a beautiful title more than conquerors interpretation of the book of Revelation" by william hendrickson and here he writes, this is 1940. So a little bit after Ellen White. We agree with the view of many eminent, I means renowned interpreters who regard the rider upon the white horse as symbolizing Jesus Christ. We have arrived at this conclusion after very careful study and on the basis of the following considerations. So, as an Adventist who rejects the Antichrist here in the first seal and clings to Jesus Christ, I'm in good company. I'm in good company. I'm with those who I believe have done serious study. You know, it wasn't too long ago, and you had the likes of Mark Finley, John Pauline, Lauren Nelson, who all in their books in Revelation declared that this is Jesus Christ in the first seal. The only problem was, of course, they didn't explain why, they just stated it just like my friends with the Antichrist view just stated. This morning, I have given you an opportunity to slow down, look at the text, to compare Scripture with Scripture, so that when you leave here, this text that he went forth conquering and to conquer that you can be assured that this is the gospel of Jesus Christ going out and that he invites you and I to participate in the spreading and the sharing of the good news. And the promise of 321 is then magnified when he says, when he bids us and by bidding promises us that we can overcome if we are in him. I believe this is one of the most beautiful studies in the New Testament. Now, just imagine, if we learned all that from the first seal, what could those other three horsemen possibly mean? I will share with you that, uh, I, and some of you are already on our Revelation site on Facebook, but um, if you want to learn more about the seals and such, we invite you to come onto the Revelation site. The, the beautiful thing is, I just find, and and, and my focus is non Avenous, non Avenous individuals, non Avenous pastors in particular. Um, Lyle knows I, I, I wrote the book Victory in Christ, a Christ centered approach to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And in that book, I didn't have to use any writings from Ellen White. In that book, I could turn to just scholar after scholar after scholar because there's so many scholars out there who are in agreement with us or us with them. Well, if you would like to learn more, I invite you to check out the Revelation site on Facebook. But until then, continue to study. It's all here. It's all here. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, Father, the promises so magnificent. The the information is so clear. Lord, I wanna I wanna claim your words from from the book there of first John at the close of the song, where he tells us that faith is the victory. It's so simple. There's nothing that we do. It's who we believe in. It's who we have faith in. We want that victory, dear Lord. Give us the faith of Jesus. Show us how to die to self daily, how to be in Christ and he in us. I pray this in his most glorious name. Amen.